0: Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soulestchurch.com. So, John 15, verses 1 through 9. I am the true vine, and my Father is a vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As a father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Be to God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the preservation of your word that we have before us this morning. Jesus, this section of Scripture, these powerful words that you've spoken, that are not just and we're not just for your followers then, but they are. Ever relevant to our lives right now. And maybe even especially now in, in this time of history, in this time of your church, God, it's, it's getting harder and harder to be a to be one of your genuine followers. To be people that aren't about religious busyness and churchianity and Christian things, but God, we know what you desire of us. We know what you you died to save us to, and that is abundant life found in relationship with you. And there's many reasons today in this room as, as to why that's been hard or why that is hard. But help us simplify it all today. To the invitation that you still speak over us, you this morning here in our midst, say to us through your word, abide in me. And that is truly our heart's desire, God, not just to know about this and learn about this, but to live in this. So would you make us a fruitful people? Would you make us an abiding people? We pray that you would use this time for that end. Holy Spirit, would you come? I have my best attempt at a sermon. I have my best efforts of worship to you, God, in preparation. But our hope is now in you. We're not here to even to to ultimately walk away with words from Andrew. Our desire, God, is to hear from you. Help me get out of the way for that, God. Holy Spirit, come. God, would you speak to us? We pray that you give us ears to hear what you want to say. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and take your seat. All righty. Well, we are, this morning, in week three. Week three in this, can you believe this? We're already at the final Sunday of January. It's, I mean, you've you got to start getting used to, like, start practicing 2025 before you know it, we're there. I'm still not used to writing 2024. Now, here we are, week three, here on, of this series we're doing in John 15 that we've entitled simply, Abide in Me. Uh, These are the words that Jesus speaks to his disciples, not just in this section of Scripture, but it's important to know in the greater context of this book of the Bible, here in John 15, we are in the middle of verses, obviously this, this uh, this is clearly known here, that chapter 15 is between chapters 13 and 17. And this is a section of Scripture in the Gospel of John that's commonly referred to as the upper room discourse or Jesus's farewell address. Jesus, here in the last week of his earthly life, uh, soon to go to the cross, it tells us in verse 13 that Jesus, knowing his hour had come, and that his departure was at hand, he loved his disciples to the very end. And the way that he loved them so well is the same way anyone would, who was leaving loved ones behind, is he did everything he could to put them in the best spot, to transition to life in a different way in relationship to him. They were no longer going to have Jesus physically by their side. They they were going to have more, and he'll tell them, you're going to have my spirit inside of you, which is actually even better than me beside you. But nonetheless, he's preparing them for his departure. And right in smack dab in the middle of all that Jesus is speaking to them, these words we have here in the Gospel of John, there is this profound and practical section here in John 15 where Jesus is speaking about their relationship to him through the imagery of a vineyard, of a vineyard. I got another photo of a vineyard for you this morning. It's a beautiful photo. Jesus is using a familiar concept to them, something that is maybe more foreign to a lot of us unless we hit up the Napa Valley or something like that. In that culture, vineyards were everywhere, and it was such a central part of vocation, obviously an agricultural culture, and also a central part of, of just life, was celebrating together, enjoying wine together, enjoying the, enjoying the fruit of the vine. So there were vineyards all over Israel. It was also a, a biblical image of Israel. And Jesus is drawing imagery out of the concept of a vineyard, and how grapes are produced, and how a grapevine eventually leads to... to to wine, to describe their relationship to him and their calling, listen to this, to be fruitful themselves. That's what he says in verse 16. He reminds them, hey, you didn't tap me on the shoulder, get my attention, and say, hey, Jesus, we're thinking about you being our Messiah. We're gonna follow you. He's like, no, that's not what happened. You didn't choose me, he says. I chose you. I saved you. This is not love that we loved God, but that God loved us. And we love him, why? Because he first loved us. He reminds his disciples, I chose you, I selected you, I saved you for a purpose to appoint you to be fruitful. I saved you not just for some conceptual idea of eternal life, certainly that is the hope of our Christian life, but so that you would be fruitful here and now, what Jesus called abundant life, so that from your life there would be fruit, and in your life, there would be the things of the kingdom of God. By the way, what a vision for what Jesus invites us into. Listen to this closely. His vision for your life is that it would be marked by fruitfulness and flourishing. In contrast, of course, to what he says there in verse 6, which is the opposite, which is deadness and withering. I mean, nobody starts following Jesus signing up for that. Like, Jesus, I want to go to church and just mostly wither. I'm just thinking I'll do some spiritual things and just be a withering Christian. Nobody wants that. Christian or not, we're all seeking what Jesus calls life and life to the full. And he promises that that life is available on the other side of a relationship with him. Now, what's been interesting in this study so far, we've spent two weeks walking through what Jesus has to say about this. And so far up to this point, Jesus has said nothing yet about what we're supposed to do. I think that's an interesting point. I don't know about you, but I tend to be a problem solver. That tends to be my mode about everything. And So I'm learning how to be a good husband, by the way. And sometimes problems don't need to be solved. They just need to be looked at. You just go, That's a problem. I agree. I feel it, too. I do feel it. Solution? No solutions. Let's just, anyway, sorry. I tend to be like that with a lot of things. Anybody else like that? It's like, okay, what do I need to do, God? And Jesus has taught, like, that hasn't worked for humanity, by the way. Just let me fix it. Let me me, me do my best to show up with a solution. And so listen, before there's a single ounce of instruction about what you and I are to do to be fruitful and have life to the full, Jesus declares who he is, what he's come to do. We started first with what we'll call the role of the son. We started with that in the first week. What is the role of Jesus in our fruitfulness? Well, Jesus says in John 15, verse one, he says, well, I'm the true vine. This is the key point. Jesus is saying, I am the true or the only or the ultimate singular source of true life. We know there's so many other false vines that life can throw at us and tempt us to attach to. The vine of our own good works, the vine of our own fulfillment, the vine of our academic achievements, the vine of our vocational pursuits, the vine of of seasons of life, whatever it may be. But Jesus says, first and foremost, here's what you need to know. I am the only one that can give you the life you desire. I'm the only one that can give you the life you were created for. So that starts with the role of the son. But then we move beyond that. So not the work that you're to do, but then Jesus affirms what we just sang about. Loved that song. Be the gardener of my heart, the work of the Father, was the second thing Jesus said. Jesus wants us to get a big vision of the Father. Remember we talked about this. Jesus shows us what God is like. He shows us what the Father is like. We don't have to make God in our own imaginations. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. When I see him, I see the Father. We don't have to be left to our own speculations about God. We could know who God is. We can in truth because Jesus has fully declared him. And what an incredible revelation of God. In all of your theological framework, whatever... Whatever grid you have and understanding you have about God, how does this line up? And where does this fit in? I am the vine. And notice this, what he says about God. My Father is the vine dresser. Wow. Jesus communicates God the Father, his Father, our Father, as one who is not just great and mighty and high and lifted up and grander and larger than any big thing in your life, but also one who is personally involved in all your details. As the psalmist says in Psalm 139, you are acquainted with all my ways. That will do something to your relationship with God. He's in the details, amen? He's in the details of your life. He's especially, listen closely, in the details of who you're becoming. That's a little harder, isn't it? It's like, hey, God's in the details of this difficult thing. He is. But he's mostly in the details of who he's making you to be through it. He's a vine dresser. Now, we could sum up in the idea there of a vine dresser. It's not a common term we use. It's like, I was doing some vine dressing out back today and got my hands dirty with some vine dressing. What are you up to? I just hired a new vine dresser. Got a great sprinkler system. A gardener. In this picture, the father being this, he, he's responsible for two primary works in our lives. Remember, we, we studied this, that the work of the father could be summed up in these two main things. Here's what the father does. First, he plants us in the son. He plants us in Jesus. The, the primary work of God in the world today is taking people and branching them into Jesus. That's where life is found. It's, by the way, his primary focus with you. When he, he was seeking your life and he was searching for your lost life, as he was seeking you, He found you to plant you in Jesus, not even to plant you in a church. That's important, be planted in a church. Not even to plant you in a belief system, but to plant you in a person, in Jesus himself, in relationship with Jesus. Now, he doesn't just plant us for the sake of saying, check out that nice plant. I mean, we've all, how many of you guys, anybody like me, how many of you guys have planted plenty of things but didn't necessarily see much flourish? Anybody else there? I can't, you guys know New Turf in Pompano? We're like, we're on a new, Brittany's thing is like, let's go to New Turf. I'm like, why? We're just going to buy things that die. Why are we going to do, do that? So, and so we're, we're trying to be a little more diligent. The whole purpose of planting is to produce fruit and flourishing. And so this is the second thing that God does. He plants us in Jesus to prune us. Now, that's the word that Jesus uses there in verse two. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So the, word of, the idea of pruning is cutting away dead things, cutting away things in our life. It can be painful when he prunes, but the idea is he's involved, like a, the way that a shepherd knows his sheep, a vine dresser knows the branches, and is involved, knows what to deal with, knows what to cut away ultimately to make us fruitful. The role of the son, the work of the father, and now and only now, after understanding that in verse 4, do we get to the call of the disciple. The, world, the role of the Son, the work of the Father, and then here in verse 4, and this is where we're going to be camping out for the next few weeks. We're going to look now at this shift that Jesus makes in verse 4, from his focus on God's part in our fruitfulness to our part In fruitfulness. Verse 4 and 5, Jesus calls his disciples, the branches. He says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you, unless you abide in me. We talked about being twiggy. You're disconnected from the vine, you're, you're gonna wither. I am the vine, you are the branches. Notice this call. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. What an interesting concept and picture that Jesus is giving here in these verses. There is in this text this sort of relationally mutual responsibility at work. There is this, this emphasis on what God does, but it's in congruence in connection with what God calls us to do. What an interesting balance. Jesus is helping us strike a healthy balance in how we approach fruitfulness. We all desire it, but how do we approach it? Well, there's, there's one danger that we've been talking about. There, there's one danger to think that your fruitfulness begins and ends with you. And Glory be to God. It doesn't. You are not the author and perfecter of your faith. Amen? Isn't that good news? He is. There's security in that. You've reached me. Uh, Paul says, I mean, confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in me is faithful to carry it out. He's faithful to finish the story he started writing in my life. That's my hope. Not that God has started this thing and then he looks at me to go, okay, now you finish it. I did my part. Now you finish the rest. That's not. The picture, we're not the vine dresser, amen? But, but there's obviously another danger that we can fall into here, isn't there? There's a false assumption we can make that just assumes because it doesn't begin and end with me that it doesn't involve me. And Jesus doesn't allow us to think that way. In this passage, Jesus communicates something, I don't know what else to say, something gnarly. There, there's something pretty heavy. Jesus teaches here, listen closely, that there is a certain kind of approach that you can have in your relationship with God that would actually limit his work in your life. That there's a way, even though Christ is the vine, and I'm in him, and the Father is the vine dresser, and he's making me fruitful. Jesus teaches that it's actually possible, though, to restrict still the life of God from flowing in and through your life. There's this call to our part. There's what we're called to do. I think Paul uh, summarizes this best in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. As, as He says this. I think this is a helpful way to think about this. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Here's what he says. I think this is a helpful way to think about this relationship between our work and God's work. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, the key word there is work out. It doesn't say work for your salvation. That's a really important distinction. Uh, we don't work for what Jesus has fully secured. Amen. We trust in what he's done. But there is a call here. As it's been said, grace is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. It's a difference. Grace is opposed to earning. You can't earn your way into God's favor. But that doesn't make grace opposed to effort. In fact, Paul says, God's grace has so impacted my life, this First 1 Corinthians, that I actually labor more than anyone else. It empowers me to live a certain way. So that's what Paul is speaking about. He's like, work out your own salvation for it is, notice this, God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. What a beautiful paradox. You see it? There's God at work in your life as the vine dresser in ways that you could never plan, in ways that you could only hope for, working in you these beautiful things. But there is a call here to work out, to work out what God is working in. It's possible for God to work in our lives and us not work and walk out what he saved us to. I mean, you don't need me to convince you of this, by the way. We all know what it's like to be a Christian that withers. We all know what it's like to check all the boxes, know all the right things, know all the rules, know the routines, and still feel like we're dying on the vine. So Jesus calls us into something bigger than that. I love this quote by Augustine, without God we cannot. But without us, God will not. Without God we we have no hope of the life he's created us to. But at the same time, it's not just like this God zaps me and it happens. There's a calling, a responsibility to walk worthy of what he's called us to. Now, what's incredible about this section here in John 15, as we go back to it. As Jesus is describing our part, he's giving a vision for how to, we can even call it like a road map. The vision, the destination is fruitfulness, it's flourishing. And the road map he gives is the father works some things, but then there's our part, and he tells us here, To abide in him. This is where this begins. I want to point out here in this section that Jesus, in giving the disciples a roadmap and giving us one as well, he doesn't give them a list to accomplish, what a lot of us would prefer. God, give me the ten things to do. He doesn't, though there are some things that he'll call us to, he doesn't give them a technique. He doesn't give them even a new set of rules He gives them, notice this, in us, himself. This is the gift of the gospel. Jesus, in calling his disciples to a life of fruitfulness, doesn't give them rules to abide by, but a relationship to abide in. This is Jesus' vision for our fruitfulness. Relationship with him. Relationship. Uh, This is what Christ ultimately came to accomplish with all the things that we make the faith and we make our lives in Christ out to be, it must all surround the primary thing that God has done, which is to reconcile you to God, to bridge the gap of your separation, to bring you back into real relationship with a real living God. In fact, Jesus says that this is what eternal life actually is. It's John 17.3. This is an interesting scripture. Jesus says, and this is eternal life, speaking to his Father, that they may know you, the only true God, and notice this, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I don't know about you, but that, I think, contradicts a lot of our American theological understanding about what eternal life is. What's eternal life? It's a, it's, it's hev- it's a place you go. And, and though there is a place, and we have the hope of heaven, what Jesus communicates is that all of the hope of eternal life surrounds a person, surrounds relationship with Jesus. Here's what this means. You don't have to die to have eternal life. You just need to know Jesus. And as you come to know Jesus, your eternal life begins. It begins in relationship with him. This is what Christ ultimately came to bring. This is, let's, let's remember, this is what broke in the beginning. The fall of man and the root of the brokenness of this world in our lives is our sinful separation out of relationship with God. It's at the root of every problem. It's at the root of all brokenness and pain and evil. Our separation from the person of God. He was life. The life was the light of men. at the center of the world, at the center of the created story and all throughout the Old Testament, we see that this is what God is seeking to restore with Israel. Israel was to be a people that, of course, lived a certain way. They were to be a light to the to the other nations by how they lived in holiness. But all of their living was to flow from relationship with God. So even the design of the tabernacle. I mean, the fact that God would go here, I want you to construct a house of worship that you'll carry around with you, set up and tear down. Like a church building every Sunday morning, all for the purpose of communion with me, also that my presence can be with you. The biggest thing that they needed, and God didn't just send a bunch of rules, He, he offered His very presence. And there were big legal and Levitical procedures that sinful men would have to go through in order to even be in the presence of God. But it's, it was always like, it's like God's heart aching and yearning to restore what's lost there relationship with the man with mankind that he created so then you get to the new covenant and I love this this is Jeremiah 24 7 this was God's promise for what the Messiah would bring what Jesus would bring God made a promise and he said that there's a day coming in the new covenant where I will give them a heart this is huge a heart to know me this is I think one of the greatest evidences that the Holy Spirit has worked in your life is all of a sudden you have a heart to know God. That I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. For they shall return to me with their whole heart. You know, I was raised in a home, parents that came to know Jesus, parents that, that really did know Jesus, and taught me to know Jesus, wanted me to know Jesus. But there's something that happens when you taste and see for yourself. God gives you a heart to know him. It doesn't just give you a law to know him. That, that, that's not enough. That's not what the gospel has come to do in your life. God comes to change our hearts to create within us a hunger for the very presence of God. And this is, listen, if you have been following Jesus for some time, the main thing that the enemy is trying to work out of you is that simple heart to know him. He will get you distracted with any and every other thing, filling your heart with even good desires as long as those desires keep you from your one desire. This is what God came to restore. And the enemy will, again, give all sorts of false fines, our family, our work, all these good things. But this is what Jesus came to do. This was God's vision. It's it's all about this, is another way to say this, amen? It's all about this. This is what was lost, this is what God desired, and this is what Jesus came to restore. People's lives in relationship with God. This is actually the vision when everything one day, when every day, uh, when one day, not if, but when everything one day gets set right. Revelation 21 describes the scene. John says, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them. Stop for a second, whatever you're going through, filter it through the lens of this hopeful future that you have in Jesus. He will dwell with them. And they shall be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne, Jesus, said, Behold, I make all things new. The hope we have in the future in Christ, in and of itself, is even a hope that centers around relationship with God. Him being there. And I love this. It's not just that when you go to heaven, this is so beautiful and personal to describe what what God has saved us to. It's not just that you won't cry. It's not just that you won't be sad. It's not just that all the pain and stuff you've walked here on earth will be passed away, but it's that God will approach you personally to touch your eye, to wipe your very tear. You'll know him in truth, in presence, in reality, this is what it's all culminating towards. This is, Jesus is like, this is what it's all about. This is what it's all about. This is eternal life, that they may know you. They may know you. And can I remind you that you don't have to die and go to heaven to know God. Because, anybody else with me right now? You do not have to die and go to heaven to know God. Have you gotten to? You said that, I know I can. The veil has been torn through Jesus. You have access to the very presence of God, not because you're worthy in and of yourself, but because Jesus paid it all. And he made the way. And that's what you've been saved to, this kind of relationship with God. And it's not something to wait for. It's something Jesus is teaching is central to your life here and now. With it, there's fruit. Without it, without me, you can do nothing, he says. So Jesus doesn't give them a list of, of rules to abide by, he gives them a relationship to remain in. I love how it says in First John five twelve, I just got, some, just got some Bible verses for you today. All right? First John 5.12, he who has the Son has life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's pretty cut and dry there. I've always read this verse with emphasis on the second part: that if I have Jesus, I have life. But I think the emphasis of this passage is not just having life. It's what? Having Jesus. Think about that for a second. He who, here's you in Christ. You have Jesus. You have God. He's the treasure. Uh, This is what Christians are called to focus on. Uh, we, We see this in David's life. Here's another Bible verse, Psalm 73. Here's what David said. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Something happens in your life when you get this. When you get to the same place as David, you're like, I have God. I know him. He saved me to know him. And in him, I have all that I need. As as the song says, we are his portion and he is our prize. This is what we're called to center around. This is what we're called even to boast in. Look at Jeremiah chapter 9. This is what we're called to boast in. I love this. Let him who glories. So Israel is a good example of, of a lot of times how we could also go wrong. where we make, the, we make the things of God more important than God himself. When we get so lost in our knowledge, in our duties, in our religion. And so, so the Lord speaks to God's people in the Old Testament And he calls them to what they're called to boast. in. he says, if you're going to boast, if you're going to glory, glory in this. Let this be the boasting of your life, that you understand and know me, that I'm the Lord. Exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Now, a previous verse, verse 23, says, don't boast in your wisdom. Don't boast in your knowledge. Boast not in what you know, but in who you know. We see that David got this, and we also see that Paul discovered this. Uh, This is Paul's story, who's writing those words in Philippians. And here in chapter 3, Paul says, Yet indeed I also count all things lost, notice this, for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ." Like when you come to see all the value and treasure of who Jesus is, everything else pales in comparison. And any, any other exchange is, is worthless. There's no question. I will give up anything and everything to know you and to walk with you. And so Jesus is teaching that it's this relationship with him. It's living in and living from this relationship that he saved us to that is going to be, listen, the deciding factor of our lives. There's a sense in which Jesus is like, my father is working and I'm the true vine, but the choice is yours. You can have as fruitful of a life as you want. You can have as fruitful of a life as I have saved you to. And it's all going to center around how you approach relationship with me. Notice how black and white this is for Jesus. No, notice how there's no option to be like, well, I'm going to, I have, you know, Jesus, I have a relationship, I go to church, I'm a Christian. But I kind of like, Jesus is just one of a few big things in my life, you know. And we kind of treat Jesus like, um, like salt that we sprinkle in our life, like we've added him to our life. We've got all our compartments of our life, of the dresser drawer, the dresser is our life, Jesus is a drawer. And Jesus gives no room for that here, does he? He's like, without me, I'm not an additive. I, I'm the center. Without me, you can do nothing. And it's another way to say this is Jesus isn't the dresser drawers. He's not one of the dresser drawers, but he's the dresser itself. As Paul says, Christ is our life. And that's this approach that Jesus calls us to as the only way to true fruitfulness. I think one of the ways to think about what this can look like negatively is described pretty well in Paul Tripp's de, um, um, framework. Uh, he t- talks, tells a story about the difference between bearing fruit versus stapling fruit. This is an interesting idea. I was reminded of this recently for through John Tyson's weekly Wednesday emails. If you're not subscribed, uh, especially men, it's written to fathers and men, uh, what it means to show up as a man in this world, in this time, and Uh, John Tyson sends out these weekly Wednesday emails, and I was reminded of these words from Paul Tripp's book, uh, Instrument in the Redeemer's Hands. And and in that book, Paul Tripp talks about, usually Paul said it, right? I mean, usually like Paul writes in Philippians, or Paul Tripp wrote it in this book. So in that book, Paul Tripp writes about an approach to the Christian life that neglects the heart issues, that neglects a relationship with God, what you're saved to, and, and tries to have some version of fruitfulness apart from Jesus, and, and so the, the framework is bearing fruit or, or stapling fruit. Let me read it to you. Paul Tripp says, Let's say I have an apple tree in my backyard. Each year, or, or orange tree fruit Floridians, right? Each year, its apples are dry, wrinkled, brown, and pulpy. After several seasons, my wife says, It doesn't make any sense to have this huge tree and never be able to eat any apples. Kind of reminds me of Jesus when he saw Israel. It's like, like the fig tree. is like, Where's the fruit? Where's the beef? Where's the fruit? Okay. That was a weird comment. Now, let's keep going. Why do we have this tree if if we can't ever eat any apples? Can't you do something about it? The whole point of an apple tree is to get apples and eat it. So one day my wife looks out the window to see me in the yard carrying branch cutters, an industrial-grade staple gun, a ladder, and two bushels of apples. I climb the ladder, cut off all the pulpy apples, and I staple shiny red apples onto every branch of the tree. From a distance, our tree looks like it's full of a beautiful harvest. But if you were my wife, what would you be thinking of me in this moment? If a tree produces bad apples year after year, listen closely, if a tree produces bad apples year after year, there is something drastically wrong with its system down to its very roots. I won't solve the problem by stapling new apples onto the branches. They also will rot because they're not attached to a life-giving root system. And next spring, I'll have the same problem all over again. I won't see a new crop of healthy apples because my solution, listen, has not gone to the heart of the problem. If the tree's roots remain unchanged, it will never produce Good apples. The point is much of what we do to produce growth and change in ourselves and others is a little more than what he calls fruit stapling. Just change this behavior. You ever, you ever actually been guilty of thinking that way about your life? Or even, I can tell you, I've given counsel to people with that. And all, basically what I've told them to do is staple some fruit on their life. Stop doing that. It's bad. Start doing this. It's good. This attempts to exchange apples for apples without examining the heart and the root behind the behavior. This is the very thing for which Christ criticized the Pharisees. Listen to this. Change that ignores the heart will seldom transform the life. For a while, it may seem like the real thing, but it will, in the end, prove temporary and cosmetic. Temporary and cosmetic. Any change any approach to faith, any approach to Christ that doesn't deal with the heart-level realities of who you are in relationship with him is like stapling apples on an apple tree. Because again, change that ignores the heart will seldom transform the life. And so it's to that, I want you to see this, that Jesus recognizes what's at the heart of the matter. This is what he always came to do. He always came to cut through the confusion and the smoke and mirrors of people's lives to get to the heart of their relationship with God. So how many times people will come to Jesus and they're like, I have this question about you, Jesus. And he's like, that's not your question. Here's the deeper issue. Here's the deeper thing going on. Here's what I'm most concerned with, who you really are. What's really going on? Jesus knew the thoughts and the intents of the heart. He knows the thoughts and the intents of your heart. He knows your life. He knows where you're at. He knows the sin that's kept you down. He knows the doubts that you've struggled with. He knows the pit of despair that you've lived in. He knows every detail of your life. Don't bypass the key places he wants to work. Don't act like that's not what he's concerned with. He just, no, no, no. That's what the enemy wants us to do. Staple fruit onto our lives. And Jesus says, no, 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 as an alternate vision to stapling fruit, Jesus says to you and me today, abide in me, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy, all of you that are tired of stapling fruit on your lives, that is exhausting, come to me. Let me deal with the root issue of your life. Let me restore what's fundamentally broken. And it's only going to be found in relationship with me. It's not a set of rules. It's a person to abide in. Now, we better define this word abide. Jesus is giving us a vision for it. Don't you love a series that in the namesake, you don't actually define what the series name means until the third week? Me too. Now, This word abide, it's important. Let's go through what this word means. It's the call he has for us. This is the vision he's going to give us. This is what we're going to work out for the weeks ahead. We're going to talk about how to do this and what ways to do this. It's obviously a relational word. It can be synonymous with Jesus saying, live from relationship with me, that you've been saved to. Obviously, we've been saying that. But let's talk about this word a little bit. It's used 10 times in this section. Like you know, someone is trying to get a point across if they repeat the same thing ten times in a few sentences. It's like I get you, Chipotle. I get. I will go. Okay. Pray for me. Um, the Greek word for abide that Jesus uses here is the word "meno." Can you say that? Say "meno." "meno." meno. And it's a word that means to remain, to stay, to dwell. Or, as I like it described, it means to make your home in. What an incredible image of what Jesus calls us to. Jesus teaches that fruitfulness and flourishing is on true fruitfulness and flourishing is on the other side of you making your home, the home of your heart and life in relationship with God. That's an important image, isn't it? Because isn't there another way to approach that where instead of Jesus being a home that we live from, we kind of treat him like a place we visit? Like an Airbnb, wherever you prefer. And you know what it's like to post up in someone else's house or a hotel and you make yourself comfortable. At the end of the day, though, you ever had this happen where it's like, by the way, I love a good vacation. I love a good Airbnb. My family has had to have uh, some great experiences. Brittany, a couple of years ago, and I, um, a couple years ago, Brittany and I got to go over to for the first time. Uh, we went to the panhandle of Florida. You ever been there? It's up there. It's Florida too, barely, but it, it's still Florida. And we got to, got to go to this uh, um, beautiful little town called Seaside, Florida, and just gorgeous. And I, I, I was like, okay, we're going to the west coast of Florida. The east coast, beast coast. I like it better. And I'm just like, it's just going to be a West Coast beach. Like, what's so great? They went over there. I was like, there's sunsets. Look at the sun going that way. Where's it going? Oh, my goodness. Great food. They also filmed the Truman Show in this town. So that got me really excited. And it was, it was just amazing. It was our anniversary trip. It was, it was two years ago, our 13-year anniversary. And we've had a handful of those. I know you as well. There's, there's just times, by the way, where you need to get away. But, but you know that feeling when it's time to go home. Do you know what I'm talking about? And you're like, this has been nice. This house is cleaner than ours. It's got more than we have. Love the shower. Something about like a good shower at an Airbnb. I might just rent this shower for a year. But, but then there's a feeling you get. Do you know what I'm saying? we you're like, as great as this is, it's not home. I wonder if you felt that with God. I wonder if you've settled in your heart that he is not someone to visit on a Sunday. But in Jesus, you have a new home to live from. You have a home base for your heart. You have a home base for your life. You have a place from which to build your life. This is the vision he gives. We will wither and die if we don't make our home in God. And you know that. You know what visiting Christianity looks like. You know how it doesn't truly supply, even though, by the way, and I'm not like anti-encounter God either. I'm not against, something happens when you, sometimes God visits with his people when they're visiting with him, and and that produces great things. But Jesus in this passage is not talking about short-term fruit. He's talking about lasting fruit which I think will be the difference maker in our cultural moment as we look at the days ahead. The difference in the future of Christians that are really walking with Jesus and bearing fruit is not Christians that are plugged into churches with great experiences on Sunday. The future of the church, it's been said, is ancient. It's practices of orienting our lives around Jesus. The future of the church belongs to those who abide when it's not cool, when it doesn't feel good, when the lights aren't blinking, when it's like, you know what I'm saying? When you return to your Monday, when you're in your workplace, when you're walking through hell, when you're questioning, when you're confused, Jesus says, abide in me. That's where the power is. That's where the power is. Making your home in and through me. This is what he, by the way, doesn't this make the Christian life the joy and refreshment it's intended to be? I, you know, I could not be a legalistic Christian. I've tried it. I'm not good enough. I can't maintain my own relationship with God. If Jesus said, hey, to be my disciple, you've got to do these ten things every day, I'd be like, I-, I love you, Jesus, but I can't do it. Please love me back. His invitation for you is to just live from relationship with him. How simple is that? How beautiful is that? You know, in this section, this is what we're going to spend the next few weeks, just a quick roadmap for where we're going ahead. There are many ways that we can abide in Jesus, but for the next three weeks, we're going to see where else the Lord leads us in this. But um, this is at least the as we're planning our way for the next three weeks. These are the three aspects of Jesus that we're going to explore how to abide in. Uh, Next week, the plan is to explore what it means to abide in the presence of Jesus. Abiding in his presence. The week after, we're going to talk about abiding in his word. He says that in verse 7. Verse 5, he says, with me, without me, you can do nothing. So with him is his presence. Abide in my word is verse 7. And I love verse 9 is abide in my love. Here's the Christian life. Jesus looks at you and he says, live from a relationship with me. Listen to what I have to say. My words are life and live from my word. Here's the command. Be loved by me. Live from those realities. And the result of that is going to be flourishing. Amen? I'll invite the team to come up here. And, and just as they're making their way up here, I, w- I want you to, as we close out, I-, I want you to see a final perspective. I know you're closing your Bibles. I know, I know there's, some, there's some like, okay, what are we doing for lunch now? Hold on. Real quick. One last but certainly not the least important thing. In a verse like this and a call like this to live from relationship with God, there can be, and let me say this, there has been a tremendous amount of emphasis in this passage on the first part of abiding. Abide in me. But what makes and only what makes this invitation so really compelling is the second part. Jesus doesn't just say, abide in me. He says, abide in me as what? I, what? In you. Hold on. He is speaking to his disciples. We're used to this. Like, I've accepted Jesus into my heart. He's in me. Hold on. The disciples are having their first century Jewish boy minds blown. There's no framework for this. You're with me. Jesus, you're promising, though, listen to this, that just as you're calling me to make my home in you, you're, you're, you're telling me that you're going to make your home in me? Again, I'm not just that he's going to visit you, but that he's going to set up shop, and he's going to dwell in the very hearts of his people. He tells his disciples in a previous verse that that he's leaving, but the Holy Spirit's coming. The Holy Spirit who's with them is going to be in them. That Jesus is not just going to call his disciples to remain in him, but they're called to do that out of an awareness that he's already in them. That by his Spirit, this is a, a key theological truth that's the basis of this Jesus resides in the hearts of his people, not just theoretically. But in truth, he's in you. As you go into this week with a desire to abide in him, you abide in him as he's abiding in you. You live from that reality. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Wrap your mind around that. The Lord of glory has made you his temple. He's made you his his temple close your eyes for a second to meditate on this god you have made us your dwelling place or do you not know that your body is a temple of the holy spirit whom you have from god and you are not your own for i have been crucified with christ it's no longer i who live but it's christ who lives in in me. Thank you, Jesus, that despite all that we are, despite the mess of the home of our lives, you have come to take residence in our hearts. Jesus, you're not just with us, you're within us. You've made your home in our lives. Whether we feel it or not, this is what you have saved us to. And your presence with us is the only lasting motivator to our relationship with you. So recenter us around that now as we invite you to minister that deep to our hearts.